every time. Don't always succeed, but I try. So what I would like you to do is grab your pew Bible. I want you to actually hold it in your hands. And since we'll all be using the same one, I'm going to call out page numbers, and we're actually going to walk through the Bible together and look at the presence of God as it is laid out for us. So we're going to start at the beginning. Page one. Turn to page one. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now these Genesis stories in 1 and 2, they're creation narratives. It means God is making something, and what he's making is his kingdom. He's making a place where he will dwell. He's going to live there. And wonder of wonders, the place that God makes for himself to dwell is also the place that he makes for his people to dwell. Meaning, we are made, designed, and created to live in God's presence. This place in the Genesis narratives has a name. It's called Eden. And Eden in Hebrew, one of the definitions of Eden in Hebrew is delight. I want us to just lean into that idea tonight as we talk about the presence of God. That God's presence is his delight. That we are created to experience God's delight. To feel delighted over. To delight in God. This is going to be an important thing for us to keep in mind as we track through this theme. But you and I will live in the world today, in this culture, in this time, and I think we can all attest that there's a lot about the world or even our personal lives that isn't very delightful. Why is that? Well, if you spent any time in the church, you're probably familiar with the story of the fall. Turn the page. We're on page three. The fall. There's the talking snake, there's some shiny forbidden fruit, and a couple disobedient bites. God had warned his people they can eat of any tree in the garden, but if they eat of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Now, when we read the fall narrative in chapter 3, they eat the fruit, but they don't die right away, do they? They don't just keel over and die. But there is most certainly a death. And that is the death of the right relationship between people and God. When we talked about this in cohort, one of my students said, oh, Eden's not a place, it's a state of being. It's the state of being in right relationship with God, where God is king and he reigns over his kingdom and we are cared for and loved and delighted over by God without question. But as soon as they take the bite, an immediate separation occurs. Sarah Rudin is a uh, translator of classic literature. Think a lot of Greek tragedies, okay? And she has a statement. It says, all tragedy comes from separation. I just think that's a really profound statement. Because if you think about it, if you think about the things in your personal life that really hurt, I would bet they're all some form of a separation. Or just think about the world, the things that really bother you, the things that make you angry or sad that you hear about or read about or experience or you know 
are taking place in the world. Again, I think they're all some form of a separation. Separation within family. Separation from home. Homeland. Uh, the separation of death. The separation of a person from their humanity. Their ability to feel compassion, empathy, kindness. These are all tragic. So I think that statement, all tragedy comes from separation, is very true. But when we look at it through a biblical lens, I think we can amend the statement in this way. All separation comes from the first and the worst, I'm sorry, all tragedy comes from the first and the worst separation. I'm speaking, of course, of the separation between God and his people. All separations that we experience today are but an echo of that first tragic death of relationship. We can see the tragedy of that separation when we read the fall narrative. We're in verse 8. They've eaten the apple. God has come to be with them. His presence, remember? It's what we're made for. His presence has come to be with them. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see what happened there? What they were made for was to be with God. We can kind of assume that this has happened before. They walk in the garden with God. It's what they're made for. And now they run and hide when God comes to do that. If you don't mind, I'd like to nerd out with you here just real quick. <laughs> because, if you don't know, I'm taking a class at Region on biblical languages. And just this last week, I kid you not, Thursday, my professor walked us through this very verse. And what I learned was really, really interesting. So, language. Most words have many different definitions, correct? Like, take the English word head. Its primary definition is this, right? Body part where your brain lives, where your face is, head. But you can also use it as the head of a table, or a head of lettuce, or you can even use it as a verb, I'm going to head to the store. Secondary definitions, okay? So the translation I just read probably uses the primary definitions of all the Hebrew words that made up this verse in the beginning. But what I learned was that some of the secondary definitions create a very interesting scenario. So I'm going to read the sentence again using other definitions for those Hebrew words. It can sound like this. This is an actual translation of the sentence. Then the man and his wife heard the thunder of the Lord God as he was pacing in the garden in the strong wind of the day. And they hid from the presence of the Lord in the separation of the trees. <laughs> Do you hear what happened there? This is a valid translation of that if you wanted to read it that way. That God is freaky scary now. He's like stormy and terrifying. But God's delight for them hasn't changed. It's just their view of him changed. After the fall, 
It's like we couldn't handle God anymore, and he became something to run away from. And that's tragic. We can read another story. We're now going to turn to page 76 together. We can read another story about how tragic this separation is for the people of God. We are now in Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus. So God has just intervened in his people's lives. He's done an amazing, miraculous feat rescuing them from slavery. And now he wants to come and be in, his, in their presence. He's going to come off the mountain of God and be in their presence, which is the way it was supposed to be. And he wants to teach them how they can remain in right relationship with him, how they can experience his delight. He's going to teach them his instructions, his law, his, his order. We're in verse 18 of chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder, there's that word again. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is how big that separation has grown. Now they don't even want God to speak to them. He's still super stormy, scary, and terrifying. It's tragic. Okay, now we're going to like grab giant hunks of pages. We're going to walk through the Old Testament, like just literally flip through the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is really, it's just full of story after story after story of people living under the shadow of separation from God. And sometimes they practice remaining in God's presence, but I would say more often than not, they don't. And I actually find the Old Testament very refreshing because of how raw it is. Here's a man. He is separated from God, living under the shadow of separation. He is not practicing remaining in God's presence. Here is what he does, and here are the tragic consequences of that. Story after story. But then we get to the New Testament. We get to Jesus. Thank the Lord we get to Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus comes. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say about the Old Testament. Yes, it's story after story of people and their choices, but it is also story after story of God and his faithfulness. Because even as his people walk away from him, and sometimes they're beastly, God is faithful to pursue his people, to redirect them, to save them, to reveal himself to them, and teach them how to remain in his presence. So then we get to Jesus. And here, God is faithful yet again. If you've spent any time in the church, you probably know that Jesus came to die. But he also came to live. And he came to live and demonstrate for us what it looks like to remain in God's presence and to teach us how we can remain in God's presence ourselves. We are in Matthew chapter 4. Did I give you a page number? 968. Matthew chapter 4. This is right before the Sermon on the Mount, which is what Chris has been walking us through. 
So Jesus lives a life, they estimate, he's maybe 30 at this point. And he begins his ministry now with these words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven. That kingdom that God was creating in the beginning. The place where he's going to dwell is at hand. It's like Jesus is saying, hello, I'm here. You guys couldn't stand being in my presence anymore, so I have done this and come to be in your presence. Let's get on with right relationship. Let's delight in each other. To borrow Chris's word from the sermon series he's in, let's flourish together. God is faithful yet again. He pursues us. He comes into our lives to show us the way. Jesus dies, and in doing so, he takes on that tragic separation into his person. And then he defeats it by rising from the dead. Now, after Jesus ascends to heaven, he remains with us in the form of the Spirit. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Page 1091, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, sound familiar, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them kind of stormy weather language again, right? But because of what Jesus did, a new way is possible. It's like, well, now we can handle it. And the Spirit will dwell in us. We are now the temple. This is the new way. It's really quite beautiful, isn't it? But I have lived for 43 years. And for most of my 43 years, I've really wanted to remain in God's presence. I have the Spirit. I've been baptized and knew Jesus early on. But it's hard. Even though this is our chapter and a new way has been made for us, it's still difficult. We still live under that shadow of separation. It's not completely gone yet. Yet. I have experienced resting in God's presence and the blessing of being in God's presence and the ways that God has used me to spread his presence. Unfortunately, I've also experienced the tragic consequences of leaving his presence. So I know both, and I know I want to stay in God's presence. But it's hard. So what do we do? What do we do about that? 1,092, just turn the page. We're still in Acts chapter 2. I want us to just land here for just, just a few minutes together because what we're about to read is another creation story. God is creating a new kingdom of sorts. It's a community. It's his church. And out of this church, he's going, he's going to dwell in the church, and out of it, he's going to work and spread his kingdom and his delight There's a funny thing about God. Like, he can do anything he wants, because he's God. 
But if you read the Bible, you find that he very rarely just does whatever he wants. He actually chooses to work through people. It's a mystery that God has tied himself to his people. He didn't have to do that. I actually find that very affirming. Sometimes as we, were, we walk through things in cohort class, the kids are always like, yeah, but why does it have to go so slow? Right? God's movement. Why is it so slow? Why doesn't God just... And I've often said to them, well, then there would be no need for us. So I find it very affirming that God wants to use me. We're actually very important for God's plan. So let's read this narrative together. And what I want us to look for, we won't be able to look at all of them, but there are some practices laid out in this narrative that help us know what we can do today to remain in God's presence. We're starting in verse 37. When the people, okay, Peter, been filled with the Spirit, just gave a moving sermon about Jesus. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So like I said, I want us to just look at a few practices laid out here. But let me just start by this. This church wasn't perfect. Two chapters later, you can see that. Our church isn't perfect. I'm in it, therefore I know it's not perfect. But the Bible is a study of practices. And here is a story that helps us know how to live in God's delight. The first practice, probably the most important, is repentance. We have to practice repentance. Jesus said it, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter gives us moving sermon. And we see that the church is formed of repentant people. Repentance. It means to turn away from one thing and to another. It's recognizing that we're not God. Or at least we can't be because we often try and are very, very bad at it. It's recognizing that we need God to be God. It's turning away from my desire to control my life, and saying, God, I trust you to be in control of my life. It's getting off the throne and letting Jesus sit on the throne. For me, it often is, Lord, I just want to know and understand absolutely everything, but I don't. In fact, I don't know hardly anything. In fact, I know nothing. So God, I just would like you to be God, and I'm going to rest in that today. 
And repentance is not a one-time act. Just like the fall is not a one-time act. We all have the capability of walking out of God's presence every day, right? So this is why we have to repent over and over and over again. Turn away from the things that we feel comfort in or control, we feel like we're in control with, and turning to God and letting him be God. We have to practice repentance. We have to practice learning more about God. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A great obstacle to us remaining in God's presence is we fear him. We see that in the Old Testament stories. We find him big and scary. We also have shame about ourselves. And I think they're kind of tied together. And we want to hide. We combat the fear of God by knowing God better. By knowing that he is good. And he really does delight in us. We combat our shame of self by knowing God better. And knowing how he sees us. Because he doesn't make bad things. We have to practice learning more about God. We read the word. We hear it taught. We share our stories. Personal favorite of mine. When I hear God's faithfulness in your life, he becomes bigger in mine. We have to practice learning more about God. We have to practice community. Verses 42 to 47, they're just this beautiful story of what these people did together. It's really lovely. But what we see is a community being formed by God. We see relationships. Because another obstacle to us remaining in God's presence looms quite large in all our lives, is pride. I got this. I don't need any help. It's all good. One of the surest ways to break down pride is to be in relationship. For it's in community that our feet hit the ground, right? It's in community, it's in relationships that we really have to practice those things we like to put on bumper stickers. It's in community where we have to Trust people. Be trustworthy. Where we have to learn how to be vulnerable and let people be gentle with us and be gentle with others' vulnerabilities. It's in community where we have to make mistakes, be forgiven, and shown grace and offer grace to the others when they make mistakes. It's, com- it's in community where we have to be needy. Nobody wants to be needy today. We all have needs. And we have to take care of each other's needs. It's really hard to be proud when you're making mistakes and being vulnerable and being needy. We get to practice releasing our pride in community. And in so doing, we are better able to enter into God's presence. Because who needs to be in God's presence if you don't feel like you need him? We have to practice community. There are more. There's prayer, there's worship, there's uh, generosity, all of these spiritual practices, right? They're all fantastic. Spend time looking at them more yourself, but we don't have time to do them all. So I have one more I want to do. And that's because I, I think in today's Western wealthy leisurely world, one of the most deceptive and possibly most dangerous obstacles to us remaining in God's presence is simply distraction just drifting away because there's 
so much in our lives today that we can fill ourselves with. Again, we talked about this in cohort. The question I had asked the kids was, why don't people believe in God? And one of the students said, because they're not forced to. What he meant by that was, is they don't, they rare, people rarely in our culture are faced with extenuating circumstances that really make them face their need for God, their powerlessness, their, their pain even. There's always another bite, B-Y-T-E, of entertainment to consume. There's always another bite, B-I-T-E, of food to eat. There's always another noise to put in our headphones. There's always another cause to take up, another volunteering act to do, another way to keep busy. There is no shortage of things with which we can fill ourselves. But the truth is, and I've read several books on this, especially in regards to our younger generation, we have never been more isolated and lonely and depressed and anxious than we are today in our culture, at least since they started compiling this data. So clearly we're filling ourselves with the wrong things. We are made to be filled with God's delight, with his goodness. And there is rest for the anxiety in God's presence. There's companionship for the loneliness in God's presence. There is comfort for the pain in God's presence. So what we see laid out in this paragraph is a devotion and a commitment to practicing being in God's presence, to resting in God's presence, to shedding the things that would keep us away from God, doing that in community, and I imagine doing it in the silence of their living room or whatever they, wherever they sat in those days. So we have to practice that kind of devotion and commitment. People call it spiritual practices, right? I guess someday talking about spiritual practices. But I'm also talking about the church because this place, and on your screen too, if you're here tonight, you are practicing this. So kudos to you. I want to encourage you. I want to remind you and say, good job. This is what you're made for. I need to be reminded of this. I don't stand up here because I've got it all figured out. I stand up here to remind myself this because God has laid this on my heart to speak out loud so that I hear it for myself and you guys hear it. And I have people in this room that I confess to when I am not doing well at any of these. When those obstacles are not going away. That's what we're here for. The church is not a social group. It's a group, and we're social. But that's not its intent. The church is God's presence. And it's the place where we intentionally are reminded to practice these things. When we're in church, on your screen, or in this room, we get to practice repentance. We get to practice learning more about God. We get to work on our pride. We get to practice resting in God's presence and laying our needs at his feet. 
Did I just give a shameless plug for church? <laughs> Maybe. But it's not just because I work here and I want to see all y'all's faces, although that is true. It's because I want to encourage you. You were made for God's delight. I titled the sermon, Speak, Friend, and Entered. Yes, it's a Lord of the Rings reference. We miss Chris, so I thought I'd put that in there. <laughs> no, I actually love Lord of the Rings. In this scene, the, uh, the protagonists are standing outside the mines of Moria. They're trying to get in and, and uh, continue their passage because everywhere else is too treacherous. And this door is shut to them, and they cannot figure out how to open it. And the inscription on the door says, Speak, friend, and enter. And they stand there for a while, befuddled, until they realize it actually means, oh, speak, friend. Say the word, friend. And as soon as they do, the door opens. So I would encourage you. The Holy Spirit can also be translated as friend. Speak to the Holy Spirit tonight. Call out his name. Invite him in. If you've never done it before, do it tonight for the first time. If you've done it a thousand times before, do it again. Speak, friend, and enter into God's delight. It's what you're made for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are delightful. Thank you that you have proven yourself to us over and over again through your stories and your word in our lives in the lives of those we know. And Lord, for those mysteries that we don't understand that don't feel delightful, we just pray for peace, pray for trust, pray for faith. Lord, I'm just grateful for every person in this room tonight and on the screen with us tonight. I pray they would know your delight for them. They would feel delighted over it. We're made for your presence, God. We long for your presence. Whether we know it or not, we're always longing for your presence. And you have made a way possible. Thank you for making a way possible. And Lord, we just speak your name tonight and ask for your help in remaining in your presence. Thank you, Lord. Amen.